Welcome to this week's episode of the Bet on Yourself podcast, where we speak to some of the world's most inspirational people who have all, at some point in their careers, taken a huge bet on themselves, transforming them personally and professionally. Today, I am joined by Leanne Katz and Rumbi Fendi, who are leading Mama Codes, an award-winning coding school, which is redefining tech education for children between the ages of 3 and 11. Central to their mission is their passion to empower the next generation with the digital literacy and wellness skills they need to thrive in a world ruled by technology. This business was born out of frustration. Frustration at the huge tech skills gap between the UK's children and their peers in other countries, the fact that boys and girls still aren't given equal opportunities, and that there still isn't enough digital support for the people who raise our next generation. So they took matters into their own hands. Leanne's roots lie in digital, with 20 years' experience in product management and digital media for major retail brands, and 12 years at The Guardian, spanning editorial and digital teams, and most recently as editorial lead for mobile and apps. She joined forces with Roomby, a business builder, speaker, diversity and inclusion activator, fundraiser, and social impact advocate with a passion for big, meaningful changes. I am so excited to share Leanne and Roomby's story with you today, and if you enjoy it as much as I think you will, then please be sure to let me know in all the usual places, such as a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you happen to be listening right now. So Leanne and Rumby, welcome to the Bet on Yourself podcast. Thank you both so much for joining me today. This is going to be a very fun conversation. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. Very, very excited. So as we do here on the Bet on Yourself podcast, I am interested in your long journey, not just where you're at now and the amazing projects you're working on and this beautiful um, coding education that you're putting into the world, but I want to start at the very beginning. Before we get to where you are now, I want to get to know Leanne and Rumby kind of at the very beginning. What did you want to be when you were little girls? What was that original dream? And then we'll get into your education and early parts of your career. But I'm curious about those first sparks of creativity and dreaming that you had. Leanne, maybe we'll start with you. Sure. Um, so I guess when I was little, um, my family had moved to London in the late 70s. I was actually born in South Africa. Um, and they were um, incredible at sort of exploring the city as newcomers and anything was possible, huge can-do mindset. And so I spent a lot of time exploring and traveling just within my neighborhood and then beyond that, which became a real passion for me through life. And just being creative, I was allowed to be creative. I went to a very almost hippie school, which had a creative curriculum. So I was a very creative kid. I guess I wanted to be an artist, an illustrator, a journalist, a writer. Um, I, I was a big talker, as, as you can tell. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that's a kind of snapshot of me as a kid, I guess. I love that. And Rumbi, you became a multi-hyphenate. Were you that way as a child also with so many interests and talents and showing up in the world in lots of big ways? Or what were you like? I, was, I think I was always um, I was a talker as well. Um, <laughs> maybe in my family, lots of boys, even in my extended um, family. And to give it context, there are like eight siblings on my dad's side, seven on my mother, all had children. So big, big family. Um, so I have to fight to be heard. Um, so, <laughs> so um, I was always a communicator, always very vocal. Um, but I, you know, when I was, apart from wanting to be Janet Jackson when I was an early teen, I was an athlete. And that's where I spent a lot of my time kind of competing. 
Um, Which sports did you enjoy most? Funny, as I was, um, as I got older, I ended up settling on that was a sprinter. So it was relay and uh, 100 and 4x100. Um, and that consumed all of my time until I was um, 16. And my dad had um, got in contact because he was kind of in, had a, a tourism business, um, had a contact at um, Gray Advertising Agency. Um, and I would do placements there because I just, he would talk about it and I would love it. I'd be like, that sounds amazing. You get to, it's so <laughs> creative and you, know, you get to come up with new ideas and convince people of things, which is a, you know, the persuasive side of my personality. I was like, I love that concept. And I did placements there as well. And that's how I kind of ended up developing that interest. Um, but when I was younger, yeah, it was outdoors. I was running and I was talking a lot. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I too come from a really big family. Um, my dad is the youngest of four brothers and my mom is the middle of six kids and I am the oldest of seven. So I definitely understand how that can lead to your leadership skills at a very young age because you need to get people on your side to get anything done. <laughs> um, but I was not a talker. I was very shy. So I, I used my persuasive skills very differently. <laughs> I was just going to add, I was the, I was the kid sister. I, um, there's just two of us in my family and I'm nine years younger. So um, oh, I was yeah. always standing up for myself because otherwise there would be, you know, nothing, I would get to decide nothing. <laughs> I think it's so interesting how family dynamics and those early childhood passions end up shaping us later in our adulthood in maybe ways that we underappreciate, you know, a background in athletics and having that natural, like competitive drive, not with necessarily especially I imagine in running it's not necessarily only about others but like really competing with yourself exactly. getting that PR getting you know yes. having those internal markers and, having, exactly something I'm, right. and just yeah constantly going and I can um with uh, that balance of um maintaining focus because I didn't always win of course so it's kind of keeping yourself going keeping mm-hmm. that focus um and also you know being in a family of um boys that energy having to come to the world with that kind of competitive, um, slightly alpha <laughs> kind of uh, way to kind of get things done and to be heard. There were no wallflowers. No, the women in my family. no wallflowers here. No wallflowers. I see that. <laughs> well, Rumbi, you mentioned that your dad was the original inspiration for what ended up being your studies because you went to the University of Arts in London and you have a BA in marketing and advertising, which I imagine comes in very handy in your work now. But I'm curious about your studies and the early part of your career. How did you start out? What was your first job? And how did that progress before you uh, entered your current entrepreneurship? Actually, it's um, interesting because it ties into one of the reasons I'm um, passionate about inclusivity is um, I I started with great, amazing experience. um, And I wanted to go into advertising, of course clutching my degree, which is too one with a distinction, but clutching my degree, I'm really excited. And of course, there are lots of graduate programs at the time, right? So, you, uh, and at the time, what I studied was almost the first of its kind to be specifically focused on marketing and advertising. And I went to like an open core and um, I'll keep the story fairly short, but um, I walked in and there was a girl um, before me who, was very animated, um, just wanted to be in TV, um, and was talking a lot about that. And the lady who was interviewing was like, oh, you know, there's definitely going to be a place for you. You know, we've got space for you. Fantastic. So I'm thinking, I've studied this. So I'm assuring, because no one else here. Um, and she took one look at me and said, I'm sorry, we don't have any more places. You'd be surprised how often that happened. 
literally that quickly, literally, just stepping up in line. Saw me, said, I'm sorry, I don't have any more places. And there's no louder message than this is based on how I look. She just literally saw me and said, no, you can't fit. Um, and I had a few experiences like that. Um, to be fair to the, you know, media advertising has changed a lot since 20 years ago um, and is much more diverse and inclusive. Um, but then in those days, it was very either you were um, obviously Oxford, Cambridge, or, and there was a very, very white space, hardly any people of any color. Um, so I couldn't do that because I couldn't get in. So I actually went into sales, used my communication skills to do that. Um, and because I'm, you know, diasporian with family that live away from me, sending money home. So it's like, got to work. Um, and I did, um, sales for a while until my best friend said to me, you don't need to look at this internet thing. <laughs> to me, and I was like, you know what? Absolutely. And I stumbled, long story short, that's how I ended up at eBay because they, they bought one of the companies I was working for and uh, let everyone else go, which was amazing. And that was my opportunity to you know, get into blue chip because they were like, they saw my potential and said, you know what, come in and run this category um, for us. Um, and because it's collectibles, which is kind of one of their biggest, it was then as well, their collectibles, yes, huge. And that's probably what ignited my um, love of small businesses, particularly like startups, because they're full of, you know, having conversations with someone dressed in Darth Vader. Um, <laughs> they're, they're Star Wars fans, but they make a million a year. And yeah. they love what they do. And they're so passionate. And they knew the platform inside out, of course, because they, you know, they lived on it. So just being with, in that kind of space, that definitely ignited that. I want to be that sense of, you know, the desire to want to be in, to build new things and to work with people who are in that kind of mindset of innovation and building something new from scratch. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of how I ended up at that point. What year was that that you started at eBay at the beginning of your career? Oh, back now. Um, it was probably early 2000, 2005-ish. Yeah. Okay. Like you could... Because so much of your story resonates with me. I also stumbled backwards into tech. That was not my original plan at all. And I joined Amazon in 2002. So right around that same period of time. And I'm, I'm wondering, because I was on the other side of it, because Amazon and eBay were very much, well, probably more on the Amazon side. Our sites were set on you guys. You were the gold standard we were trying to beat. So you and I were on other sides of the pond, <laughs> really say, like going at it. Yeah, It really was such a, it was also new, wasn't it? Like the way yeah. you know, I remember they were just thinking about integrating PayPal, which is now huge. Yep. It was mm -hmm. all so new. And that's where I got my experience pitching to Meg Whitman, who of course ran for president. She's intense. Pitching to her. That was my, that was my first experience. I had to bring your business unit every quarter. She flew in and you had to stand in front of her. And I'm like in my early twenties and twenties kind of having to go through, you know, really convince her a, of the job I'd done and the plan that I had for the future. Definitely a baptism of fire. <laughs> okay, we could spend the next hour just talking about that. I have so many questions because I was on the other side doing that with Jeff Bezos. Um, how did we do that in the early 20s? I don't, I, you just figure it out. Um, that's amazing. Leanne, I am curious about, so your studies were at Oxford 
And you have also a non-technical degree, much like I do. So your degree was in modern history and French, and I studied international studies and Scandinavian languages, and then ended up in tech. So tell me about your early studies and how that um, led into your early career decisions. Sure. So um, absolutely, it was not a linear <laughs> um, uh, evolution. <laughs> so I guess going back to yeah, my childhood, my teens, I was, I was quite academic. I was always quite bookish. Um, I worked hard and I, and I liked doing well. And so I went to quite an academic high school. And I remember, it's quite topical actually at the moment with, with the conversations that are going on around girls and STEM at the moment in Britain. Um, I was told I was a natural physicist by my phys physics teacher. And people might think this is a great thing, but to a girl in the 1980s, in that particular all-girls school, this was like the kiss of death. This was the uncoolest thing anyone could ever say to me. And so I was like, ah, oh, what do I do with that? And I actually didn't like physics all that much. I, I liked chemistry more. And as I went into my last two years, um, which I guess in the UK, you're doing A-levels and you're narrowing your, your subjects that you have to choose, which I don't agree with, by the way, but that was that's the system, still is. I had to choose basically three, maybe four subjects, and I wanted to mix it up. I wanted to do chemistry, I wanted to do languages, I wanted to do history, and my school were just not supportive. They did not want me to mix it up. They said, you've got to choose one or the other. You've kind of got to do all the sciences and maths, or you've got to do humanities and, and maybe mix that with languages. So I was kind of consciously steered away from STEM, a STEM path, a STEM studies path, by, by just the, the social constructs of the time, the peer pressure, the perception that that just wasn't a girl's subject, it wasn't fun, it wasn't creative, it was dry and boring and geeky. And um, I ended up studying, yeah, history and, and French at uh, university, and I did uh, a number of languages through school as well. And I then went off into that classic kind of graduate, humanities graduate path of kind of journalism and content creation and creative industries. Um, and it took me until my mid-30s to circle back and have an opportunity to to really interface with the sort of nitty gritty of the tech world and, and get super excited by it. So a bit like uh, Rumbi was describing when I graduated, I mean, we're the same age, so it makes sense. Um, it was the dot-com uh, boom. And so having been interested in journalism and writing pretty much my whole childhood and, and teenage years and having really tried to get work experience and having got work experience at the BBC World Service and um, The Guardian and actually The Times as well through my university years, I had my eye caught by a shiny new thing, which is a bit of a, a theme in my life. And a startup wanted to hire little me with no experience to be the fifth person in um, as a marketing executive. So I was quite interested in marketing as well. And I think there's a bit more crossover between marketing and journalism than a lot of people would allow for. Um, so there I was, and um, it was a, an interesting idea. It was a kind of internet loyalty points model where we were trying to bring um, retailers on board. Uh, it's a bit like Nectar, I guess, now. Um, and it didn't last all that long, although it was acquired. I certainly didn't last that long in it because I realized it just didn't float my boat, didn't light my fire. I wasn't excited about it. But I had some incredible formative experiences there. And I'm a big believer in taking what you can from every experience. And every job is probably a bit less wrong than the first one you dropped. Um, so I learned uh, how to talk to agencies. I was I was taking on marketing agencies as like a 21, 22 year old um, who were telling me, it's great, we don't give you grads. <laughs> we don't staff your project with grads. I was like, uh-huh, 
great. I won't tell you where Ashgrass has just come from. Um, and I, I gained amazing experience. It's actually um, founded by Mark Reed, who now runs WPP. So it's an amazing management team. Um, and I learned a huge amount. But after six, nine months, I was realizing it, it was a bit of a, a detour. So I moved back home, save on rent, and I started again. And I reached out to all the journalistic contacts I'd made painstakingly over the last three, four, five years. And I got an opening, I got an entry-level job at The Guardian, um, incredible uh, news organization that was really expanding into digital at the time. So I was a young thing. I could talk tech, they thought. So even though I didn't actually have to do programming, I kind of got put on the digital side, only ever worked on the digital products, the website, and later the apps. Um, but in quite a cross-disciplinary um, team. So I was working with marketing, I was working with tech, I was working with the commercial teams, and I was working with the editorial teams. Um, and in the end, I got seconded to what was quite a pivotal project for me um, in a basement with 65 developers, which was to actually reimagine and rebuild the website in, it, in the first ever responsive website. So we're going back some years. Um, and 64 of those 65 developers were men. So it was quite an interesting environment to be thrust into. It felt like I was completely a fish out of water. It was a different, um, it was a different tribe. It wasn't my tribe. I, the other building was full of women flamboyantly dressed in creative, creative women flamboyantly dressed in outfits, colorful outfits, um, swearing a lot and being very extrovert. And this building was full of guys in death metal t-shirts in quite a dank basement, it must be said. And I just was so struck by this um, imbalance and just thought, why is this? The case. This is a really forward-thinking employer who I'm sure would be looking for the female developers that are out there. They're just not out there, are they? <laughs> and why is that? And why have I been unable to interface with this and, and engage with these amazing work opportunities? And those developers taught me to code because I was in charge of the multi-million pound budget. I wasn't in charge. I was helping to um, to brief them in order to create this incredible, very business critical project. And I didn't really know which way was up when it came to coding. And they said, listen, we're just gonna take some time in our lunch hour to teach you, it'll be better for you, it'll be better for me. <laughs> and it was just this epiphany. It was a win-win, it was an epiphany. I, I realized coding makes the world go round. Coders make the world go round, even in journalism, where you might not think that that was a core skill. And I really got in, excited and I, and I sort of traced it back to, I reflected why was I not in that room before? You know, why had I been excluded and this whole, all these pressures that I'd had to steer away from STEM? And I, I had this really strong feeling I didn't want my daughter to, to miss out. She was six at the time. My son was a bit younger. He was already all about numbers and maths and would clearly be self-selecting to go to coding club if one was available, but she wouldn't. And I was thinking about how I, as a parent, wanted to encourage her to do that. Um, and that's really when I, I started discovering uh, coding and got really passionate about uh, opening up that access for children from all backgrounds. There's so much to unpack from both of your stories and this is why I love starting at the beginning because I don't know if it, this is true for you but for me early in my career I didn't fully appreciate how much I was absorbing and how much of those early struggles inform the way you lead later. Um, having stumbled into tech very very early also I didn't come from a technical background I um, was very interested in the sciences. In fact, my favorite undergraduate course was one called Weather. We were just studying atmospheric sciences. 
absolutely woke something up in my brain I, I hadn't known was dormant and I'm still very, very passionate about atmospheric sciences. But um, it's so interesting, these, these sorting mechanisms that move us away from potential passions, like from your experience at the university and Leanne, your um, desire to get into sciences and then self-selecting out a little bit and then having the system select you out and then I love that we all came there anyway, though, because I think we're all, um, I think there's a common denominator here of like, we do like to set our own PRs and we like to have very challenging environments. Um, I'm curious, I, I really am trying to control myself because I want to know so much more about those early experiences, but I do want to highlight what you're working on right now because that's so important. Um, but I'm also, I want to come back to this. I want to plant the seed of a theme that I am curious if it will come out in our further conversation, which is... How did those early experiences and working with other leaders, those that did bet on you and those didn't, like, for example, presenting to Meg Whitman, which I imagine is a very intense experience, or having engineers mentor and sponsor you into, okay, let's get this education up to where it needs to be so you can advocate for us and it makes our jobs easier. Um, I'm curious how that shapes the way that you are sculpting your teams right now, the types of leaders you are, the way you show up as mentors and sponsors as well. With that in mind, because uh, I have a feeling there's a lot to unpack here, I'm curious how the two of you met, because you're two of the three co-founders for Mama Coats, yes? Um, so I'm curious, and I'm curious how you met and the original instigation of this idea. Great. Well, um, it's it's a love story. We always we always um, describe ourselves as business wives and, and sort of talk about our first date. Um, <laughs> So, um, yeah, you're right. There, there were three um, original co-founders of Mama Codes. Um, so myself and then two other mums who'd been working in digital industries in London. We did the very first uh, research and development and testing out of the idea. Um, one was a software engineer turned parent blogger. And she had been experimenting with teaching her four-year-old to code. And she lives near me and we have a friend in common and we sat down, she sat me down in a cafe and was like, I've been watching what you guys, what you've been doing. Um, I've been watching what you've been doing with your contracts and your, you know, I'd left the Guardian um, recently and I've been, I've been setting up my own digital consultancy and I'd been working with different brands as to how to um, optimize for, for mobile, which was new then. People weren't all convinced that things had to be mobile friendly. And she said, I think you've come to the end of your contract and I'd love you to help me with an idea I've been mulling around. Um, how we can teach tiny kids to code, like literacy, you know, like using early literacy techniques. And I was a bit dumbfounded. I was like, I know it's on the curriculum, but um, how do you teach a four-year-old? I mean, seriously, what does that look like? And she talked, you know, we, we talked it through and she mentioned some really inspirational figures, including Dave and Stephanie Shirley, Steve Shirley, who had set up a um, homeworking team of mum programmers in the 1960s. Um, and had really kind of turned on its head the way we think about startups, you know. And she was very much proposing that, you know, we try this out on a kind of startup on the school run model where we would, you know, she didn't have any childcare, she was a single parent, she wanted to see if we could do it, and she had startup experience before. And the third mum was a digital marketer, self-taught coder, who she'd been working with on the the parenting blog. Um, We did some initial, uh, you know, tests and... um, actually e-learning tests and parent hacks where we had parents around into our living rooms and um, get them hooked up to the TV with their iPads, try some coding. And it was all pretty exciting. We could see there was a gap in the market. 
the two of them then decided it wasn't actually the right moment for them to be running and launching a startup. So actually they stepped away and I took the business forward and incorporated um, Mamaphase Limited actually just five years ago last week. So I was then left sitting on my summer holiday. I remember sitting on a sun lounger thinking, how am I going to grow this business? It wasn't, it, it, you know, it's not turning out the way we initially thought with the initial vision and the initial founding team. What do I do with it now? I'm not a teacher and I'm not a coder, but I can see that this is a hot idea and everyone needs it. It's so needed. How am I going to grow it? So I decided to put a little, you know, put my hand in my pocket and put a bit of my own money behind the business to try and grow the team and to find somebody who could help me scale. And I actually advertised, didn't I run before, like a sales and marketing manager on workinstartups.com and um, thinking that, you know, I need someone who's going to get this into schools and families around the UK initially and then, and then we'll see. And I don't want to be running around. I can, I can do the product side. I can do the, the, the growth and the vision. Um, but I need somebody to help me. And Rumbi applied, thank goodness, even though it was completely the wrong kind of role for you, wasn't it, Rumbi? Do you want to maybe take up the story from here? Yeah, I, I literally, I, I saw that. Um, you saw that role and I was like, I love it. I, I have learned to trust my instincts implicitly. Yeah. Like, I don't know the ins and outs, but I can feel this in my body. But no, that's not the role I'm going to be doing. <laughs> I absolutely need to be a part of this. I need to speak to um, Leanne but, um, and, and just find out what else we can do. But as a bit of um, a background to how I led up to that is um, I had been, I was in corporate for years. So I got scaled up and I kind of honed my skills in um, uh, building up nascent platforms. That's essentially what I did. Kind of being at the new end of things. So going into a corporate where they usually were more analog than digital and didn't know how to commercialize their platform. To build it out, staff it, of course, it's all about revenues. Um, so it's doing kind of five, 10 million um, revenues that I had to generate for the business. That was my job. Um, until I had my, um, I, I had a, a moment, and it was an epiphany or I just, there was a seed was planted. Someone must have said something to me, but I kind of thought, I can't keep doing this anymore. Like, I can't, I, I, you know, the money was amazing. My trajectory was heading towards um, kind of global senior level. Um, but I was, when I had this moment, I was um, working around the clock. HQ was in Seattle. My boss was in Amsterdam. I was in London. I was coming off the train. Meetings were getting slotted in to my phone, 9 p.m., 10 p.m. because of the time differences. And I was just like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. It's kind of like, you kind of think, what is the, the value, cost-benefit? What am I, do, do I want to keep doing this? What am I chasing? Um, and of course, um, financial reward is always important because I have a family to look after in the literal sense as my parents. And, um, but I just thought I can't, I can't spend the rest of my life doing this. And I just thought I have to take the leap because I don't have a family. So it was easier for me in that sense to like, I can take my skills. I'm going to go to the startup world. Don't know anything about it, but I know this is what I want to do. And off I went and I did that for about um, um, six or so years, um, working kind of early stage founders and businesses, um, which is a great experience all around for me. But I brought the same kind of principles of, you know, execution. You have an amazing idea. How do you turn that into money? And how quickly and effectively can you do that, essentially? Um, also, you know, recruitment and things like that, because I've been managing large teams by that stage. Um, and then I 
just I thought, oh, I, you know, I'd love to start my own startup. So before Mama Codes, um, I set up another startup with another co-founder, and it was a spectacular failure. Which <laughs> <It> was <laughs> spectacular, spectacular failure. But I learned so much, mm-hmm. so much. Um, I can see now why kind of investors value that kind of experience because it does hundred um, percent read out a lot. Um, and um, we, I did that for about um, two, two and a half years. And when I had decided, um, you know, everything happens for a reason. We parted ways, um, settled everything. And I was like, right, I'm going to go back to consulting. So I'm going to start looking. And that's where I saw that, the ad that Leanne had put up. And I kind of thought, this is what I want to do. Like impact, I want to change the world. I want to change things for people in my country. I want to, that's what I want to do. Like really, really um, make some tangible change in the world, the change that I wish I could have seen when I was young. Um, and that's, I just had to get in touch with Leanne and that's how we got together. I love that. So I'm curious, this is a very hot conversation at the moment because we've had the great resignation, which is great led to the great realization globally. And I think that's what you're just describing is you you were realizing how you wanted to repackage your skills. You you now knew how to turn ideas into money. I love how you phrase that. But you and you wanted to carry that forward, but it sounds like you wanted to be very purpose and impact driven in what you did next rather than just letting like the dollar potential. Well, which is very important. I mean, you're, you know, when you're a caregiver, when you're a provider for your family, that's an important element. Was it super clear to you already before that moment of lightning inspiration when you saw that posting and knew it was for you? Was it already really clear what you were looking for or did you just recognize it once you found it? I I think I knew the kind, yeah, that I wanted to be in the impact space. I just didn't know how it was going to look. Um, the um, startup I um, worked on very broadly was this completely novel and yeah but the, the basic premise was really exciting as a way of kind of um uh connecting people with different life experiences and ideas on a platform so they could actually build things together um so and that i won't go into it too much but the drive for me behind that was if i could have somebody who let's say you know i was a full-time carer i'm working full-time carer um I could be one in the UK, someone could be one in Africa, someone else could be one in Sweden. And we would be able to connect because we had that life experience and either inform companies or build something for them. And that's where the kind of impact aside, that's what you know drove me um, in that startup. The idea that I could actually help um, uh, create uh, revenue business opportunities for people who wouldn't have them by connecting them. So I was in that headspace anyway, but I didn't know where I was going to land. I just knew once I had the taste of that, that that's what I wanted to do until I saw the, the roles. And I was like, this is, this is perfect. Yeah. I'm glad to hear you describe it that way because I think only in retrospect did my pivot out of corporate and into a smaller startup world make sense. Because at the time, I, I knew I wanted to do something of my own. You know, working under the brands of Amazon and Google for 15 years is the greatest business education the universe could have ever given me. I'm so grateful. But I just felt that itch to do something. And I knew I wanted it to be impactful, but I didn't have this clear, you know, checklist of things that it had to fulfill. And I'm kind of glad because I've allowed it to evolve over time. And I think you all um, must have met right around the same time. I, I left Google in 2018. I think 
did the two of you start working together around the same 2017, time? 2017, late 2017. Yeah. So there's this little magic in the air looking back on it where I feel like some of us were picking our heads up. You've you've both had incredible journeys working for amazing brands and learning a lot. I also have had some spectacular failures. <laughs> um, and when you have that in your tool belt, I feel like it um, gives you that capability to really truly bet on yourself and say, what's the worst that could happen? I really believe in this cause and putting this out into the world. So let's let's give it a go. Now you all, even though this was just 2017, you have had spectacular growth. And I want to remind everyone, most of that was during the pandemic. So walk me through, the two of you start working together. You're combining these incredible experiences, skills, um, growing a really young, small team. And um, I'm, I really want to hear about how you scaled it, how you built the right team and the right players, because I believe in people are a bigger indicator of long-term success than the idea, personally. <laughs> um, and so how are you collecting these teams? And then we can get into how you're funding it, because I actually think your approach is really interesting and could inspire a lot of entrepreneurs. You don't have to be this quote-unquote entrepreneur in the garage going to a VC firm asking for $100 million. There's lots of ways of growing really important ideas, and I, I love your approach. So Walk me back to 2017, before we knew this crazy pandemic was coming, and then how you've done had this incredible impact and success. And I think a lot of it is because you're so passion-driven. You really, um, both of you are so committed to the cause of educating these kids. I have, honestly, I have a million questions. It's hard for me to say just one. <laughs> Sorry, that was like 12 in one. <laughs> um, okay. But early growth, notes. growing the team. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm so if I could simplify what I just asked. <laughs> early growth stages, 2017, growing the right team that had the right chops and collaboration to survive and thrive in the coming pandemic. I'm curious how that happened. It's kind of just you and me for a long time, wasn't it, Rumbi? And we And we were focusing on growing, testing out, um, drop-off, coding classes for kids, really young kids, like three to seven-year-olds in various locations in London. Um, so the very first kind of trial class was actually me delivering a class in a local gym space, very open, flexible space, padded, so the kids could stay safe and not bounce. Literally, they could bounce off the walls <laughs> if they wanted to. Um, and... Um, I remember saying uh, very early on in Mama Code, you know, I'm really not sure I want to be like taking on any teaching. Kind of, I had two tiny kids. I didn't want to be um, busy after school. You set up your own business sometimes thinking you're going to have flexible, wonderful control over your time. And actually, you know, all of your time goes into the business at least six days a week. But I did it and I absolutely loved it. And the kids absolutely loved it. And the parents absolutely loved it. I did it in a brilliant local gym space called Fison Fitness, run by an awesome woman who uh, loved fitness and started her own gym very young in her early 20s. And she had a mailing list of all the mums in the area because they all did Pilates there. So, I, you know, we emailed them together. Bang. They were interested in this cool new thing. They dropped their kids off. But then, you know, Rumbi and I were thinking, well, how do we scale that? We need to test it in different locations of London because London is huge mega city with lots of different, you know, microclimates in a sense, different communities with different views. And we did that. Um, we had three test sites and we started advertising for a very um, low cost model uh, of a kind of micro franchisee. Empowerment was a really important value we both shared and not just for the children we were teaching, but for the team we were going to build and we wanted to attract initially actually mums 
um, true to the name, the brand name. It's kind of by mum, for mums in a sense. Um, we wanted to attract people who didn't necessarily have any tech skills or background. We thought we could teach them all of that if they're teaching kids at such a young age. We had a proprietary curriculum, teach them how to teach it, and we would allow them to work two, three days a week to promote and deliver classes in their area. Um, and thanks to Rumbi's incredible um, you know, ops experience, we were able to scale that to 35 classes a week in 17 months uh, from that initial sort of data. Um, we learned a lot though, didn't we, Rumbi, about you know, what kind of person we were looking for, the right profile, somebody who could teach and sell, that's not always compatible. And obviously then the, um, the pandemic hit. Um, one really interesting hire we made, who is our other kind of core management team member, was Roshani. And um, maybe Rumbi, you want us to tell the story of how she joined us as a customer first? I think, and we actually have a fair number of those um, experiences where people find us because they've used us or come across us and just love what we do. And that's one thing I will absolutely say um, about Leah and how we complement each other because she is, um, people are drawn to the business and it's definitely her. <laughs> Not me, it's definitely her. That kind of, it's, it's, um, I don't know. I think it's all of us and, and you in particular. I do think there's something to having a dynamic founder. I, I think there's a special energy that cannot be replicated later. Even in the, in the Google model, when our founders then brought in, quote unquote, you know, parental supervision with Eric Schmidt, who is a professional multi, you know, career CEO, there's something really special in a founder. I think that's true. Um, I definitely want to get into the story, but I think I would be remiss if I didn't help our listeners understand what that magic is that makes all of you and these incredible people you're recruiting into your into your curriculum. I wonder if you, can you walk us through what your mission statement, because I found it very inspiring on the website. You go through three points of what you're really trying to accomplish here. And I think this explains why people are so dynamically drawn into what you're trying to put out into the world. So maybe, because um, I'm sure that's part of this story, right? When you're finding the right fit, it's because you have that passion alignment. Sure. I mean, our, um, our mission is to empower the next generation with the digital literacy and wellness skills they need to thrive in a world fueled by technology. So it's about attracting a wider range of children from a wider range of backgrounds, you know, all genders, uh, making it seem like somewhere that everyone wants to play, um, as well as looking at tech holistically, because a lot of parents actually, one of the biggest challenges we face as a business is convincing parents to let us have their children on a screen for more time. <laughs> There's right. a real knee-jerk reaction and negative feeling around screen time. So digital wellness is actually something that's a real kind of USP for Mama Codes. We teach families how to feel more confident about how they are using technology and where they're putting the boundaries around it. So uh, at the end of our coding classes, we do mindfulness so that we all end our tech sessions happily with a smile and without a tantrum. Um, we also have webinars for parents and the Facebook community around raising digital kids in its widest sense. You know, what digital skills do kids need to have for the future? But also, how can everybody feel happy about the tech use that we have? Um, so that thread of empowerment, as I said, it, it, it really runs through everything we do whether that's the children uh, that we teach, the skills we give them and how we want them to feel about the mastery that they create around their coding and their digital skills, but also bringing the parents and teachers along on that journey. And then within our team, we've really sort of pioneered flexible working and remote working before the pandemic. Um, 
most of our team is part-time and works asynchronously. They can do their jobs at 2 a.m. If, for all I care. Um, so we, we attracted, uh, I guess, kind of impact-minded people, many of whom had teaching or volunteering experience, for example, as a kind of scout leader. You know, we didn't ask for formal teaching experience, but community and, and child-facing uh, experience. People who wanted to give their time to something which benefited them financially, but also had uh, a strong purpose, I think, that unites the team. I've never seen the team more excited than the day we told them we were doing some um, outreach free session um, for uh, an amazing charity, which uh, Ruby and I partnered with quite early, called Nova New Opportunities. And they um, work in the community in West London that was hit by the terrible Grenfell fire tragedy, um, uh, also in 2017. And the thought that we were going to be able to be including these marginalised kids who'd been through so much in a fun in a fun experience, giving our time and giving, uh, giving them that experience really excited the team in a way that really surprised us. Um, so yeah, we're, de- we're definitely an impact-centered bunch of people. So powerful. Rumbi, I want to go back to the story that I interrupted of one of those early hires, understanding the magic. And, and I think it's so smart the way you designed it so early to be able to include these passion-driven people, especially those who need asynchronous work cycles, working remotely because of other commitments, responsibilities that they have in their life. I think that's beautiful. But Rumbi, I'm so curious to hear about this, this early hire and, and how you created this magic that sustained and propelled you through the challenges we didn't yet know were coming at that. I, I think there's, that a, there's so much to be said. Um, so one, probably one of the things, the biggest things I've learned um, being part of Mama Coat is because uh, you can't fake it. When you speak authentically, other people can hear it no matter who they are or where they are. And, um, and you click. That, that hence people being drawn to the business because it's we're very clear on our beliefs and our values and then we kind of st- put the structure and the process around that. Um, and that's how we f- these people find us a lot of the times. Um, so with um, uh, Rishani, who is um, head of product um, and ops, as has happened in other cases as well, is you know, she came across us um, and had and loved what we were doing. Um, I think she had a children coding as well. Yeah, um, she wanted to, yeah, she wanted to get her... Which is normally the case. They'll normally try a class. They'll love it. She's only four or five, though. Exactly. Yeah, she's tiny. (laughs) Um, But you kind of thought, and she'd been in kind of in corporate as well. And it's similar to me in the sense that you kind of see something meaningful. Like you're in corporate. It's something that just resonates. You're like, you know, I have to be a part of this. So she approached us saying, or or Leanne, actually. uh, They connected. And she's like, you know, I love what you're doing. Um, how, how can you know what can we do? And actually, uh, because we went you know back and forth, kind of you know ironing out the role and what the responsibilities would be at the time, she actually she had a, she got a second she got a job in the time we were talking, uh, but she wanted so badly to work with us that we she worked for for us as well because she's working flexibly. two jobs for three months with two kids two under six. Three months. Exactly. She wanted to help us so much, be a part of the business, and obviously not not let down the company she was working for, meet those responsibilities. Two jobs for three months, so she could hand that over and join us full time. And if that's not a sign of just pure commitment, pure passion, you know, kind of stuff you can't bottle. Um, no. Yeah. yeah no. Bottle and, that it, for and it came, didn't it, from her trying an online class, which was something we were testing out pre-pandemic. We wanted to move to a digital-first delivery model. And we were convinced that, you know, online classes was the future. So thankfully, we tested it. 
But very few parents were forward thinking enough to look beyond the friction of I don't know what Zoom is or I don't want my child to do an online lesson versus a face-to-face one. I don't think it's good enough. But she did. She was futuristic enough to do that. Yeah, in the pandemic. So this was a big question I had is how did you in just 10 days pivot your entire business model to continue to serve these kids, continue to inspire those kids who are involved in it and especially address your mission, which is to stop this STEM cliff, which for girls um, I learned on your website is around age nine, that that cliff is very abrupt. Um, because it was so passion driven and you were so creative, you were able to do that. But I tell me that story of this 10 day pivot of getting everything rounded up. So it sounds like you had some early testers, you were figuring out the model, but I'm sure it wasn't yet perfected. Um, how did you make those Absolutely. adjustments? So I mean, we'd, we'd done some very limited testing. We had, you know, four or five people had, had had online classes just because they knew about us or they had been in London and then moved away. And they were in an area where they couldn't access face-to-face classes, but they were passionate. They either worked in IT or, um, you know, really, really prioritized coding for their children. Um, one of whom was Rumbi, one of whom was Rashani, who later joined us as um, head of ops and, and product. Um, but very few others, um, you know, we, we were very few others joined us at that stage. We were ahead of customer demand, but we had thankfully, through the steps required to deliver an online class, had some tutors trained to deliver them. We had the tech tech checked out, and um, we could see what was coming. I think early planning was a really key part of our success at that period because we actually, in that pivot, didn't lose a penny of revenue, booked revenue. So a lot of customers and school partners had booked us to deliver that term. The lockdown came, um, I think, in the penultimate week in March. And luckily, we were heading towards an early Easter break. So we only had one or two weeks to kind of substitute with online classes. But we I mean, Rumbi, you know, you you trained, you you gathered the team and trained. We trained them in the online delivery methods, pitfalls, security, safeguarding, all those things. The customer service team, the booking platform. <clears throat> yes, everything has to deliver the change. curriculum because it's very different, you know, when you're online versus being in person. Especially with such little students. I mean, their attention spans are so small. I have lots of nieces and nephews, and I half of them I can imagine, like doing online school. Uh, so it's really incredible. And I think it must have come through in the dedication of these people that you had brought on board to do something that I imagine was, I mean, never easy, but especially when you're first pivoting to, to adjust that curriculum, to keep these littles uh, tuned in and, and engaged. It was a very, very difficult time for many of the team. Um, and not everybody moved over. Not everybody was able to pivot to, to teach online, but the vast majority were. I think we only lost about three or four tutors from our from our team at that time. We kind of went on a, on a pause. Um, and many of the team actually picked up a huge amount more teaching um, than they had had previously face-to-face and were able to relocate to less expensive parts of the country outside London and continue. Um, so out of our team, it was really, really tough on, on women, actually. It was really tough on sole parents. Um, it was tough on anyone with bad Wi-Fi or any children who couldn't be reliably not interrupt you doing an online call. Um, but actually, for many, it was brilliant for those who had kids over about seven who could you know, reliably be kept busy for 45 minutes to deliver, while you delivered a class. You could stack your classes. You didn't have the travel channel costs. And I remember, Rambi, do you remember we told the team 
maybe a year before this is going to be the future we're going to do it this way and you're going to be able to stack all these classes and they kind of looked at us like really <laughs> they didn't really believe us <laughs> and then um thank goodness uh, in a way <laughs> the one silver lining is that you know the pandemic just accelerated that that sea change in um in lifestyle and, and education delivery that you know 800 million children and you know students around the world were homeschooling suddenly and there was this huge pain point for for parents particularly those who were trying to hold down work around that that uh, dynamic and I know myself it was an absolute nightmare but that was the same for our whole team so we had kids around our ankles and we were still <laughs> powering through this massive challenge determined that it wasn't going to sink us and actually I, I mean I do remember sort of listening to various podcasts and reading various articles which made me quite mindful of like this is an opportunity to actually be defined by how you how you react to this massive challenge is going to be a really really key point in, in your life and your business's life so think really carefully. How are you looking after your team? How are you making everything as flexible as you can? And actually, really luckily for us, it's a thread that runs right through our, our journey so far, and I hope it stays that way, is that we're so relatable to our audience. We are our audience. We live the same lives as them and the same timetables and the same pressures and have the same hopes and fears for our children. So we could really relate to them in a number of different huge Facebook communities that sprung up for parents at that time and offer them support and offer them freebies and we actually that's really when we kick-started that explosive growth part two um, which was um, I think we grew 184% from the August 2020 to February 21. Incredible. I, most business models crumble under that kind of growth. <laughs> I think we've all seen that and, and experienced it. Um, I'm curious if, do you think some of that success is because of your core philosophy that this isn't just a singular experience for the kids that you're serving in this new generation of digitally savvy, tech-minded new generation, but you take a very holistic approach in bringing in kind of their entire tribe of supporters. You bring in the families, parents, community, et cetera. Do you feel like that's what was able to shore up this growth that you had and, and make it so successful in this bizarre environment? Because it isn't, you don't just like, it's not just the kids are there and then the parents have no idea what's going on, but you really involve everyone. Is that right? Yeah, we try to. We try to provide um, information that's very digestible for very busy parents. You know, we don't require them to be on the, the lesson live call with their child. That is very much hands-free time. We look after them for you. Um, but we provide information. I think, I think what really helped us there was just the tone of voice we were able to have. You know, uh, we were able to just get out there and say, we, we feel your pain. We really do. Our day started at four uh, to fit it in before the homeschooling started. And here's just something, a worksheet about coding that is non-screen, is off-screen and will keep your child busy for 20 minutes. You're welcome. <laughs> and that is exactly what parents were just desperate for. And I guess um, another kind of interesting kind of customer insight that we've, we've picked up over the years has been that we don't want to seem too clever to our customers. We need to be authoritative and expert. But if it's beyond the re their reach to gen up on this stuff, they feel like, oh, I don't know, I need to take some time. I need to read in. I'm not ready to take that leap. I don't want to book this for my child. And then they'll overtake me. And they might, I mean, parents have told me, you know, I'm worried my kid's going to hack into the school uh, computer system if I book my class with you. Um, and so there are some really deep-seated fears around this stuff so we have to stay up to speed 
um, with our audience, constantly explaining in bite-sized chunks, not in massive tomes to read or, you know, online courses to follow. Um, I think it was more around the tone of voice and the relatability than necessarily how much we told the parents about the courses at the time because they just didn't have time to take on anything. We're trying more now, now we've all found our feet. <laughs> Yeah, and I was going to say to, uh, you know, 100% um, agree with Leanne, I think there was obviously a lot going on in the background, but to remain that safe place to land, like the world literally just is upside down, inside out, who knows what's going on with home, you know, work, school, so much uncertainty. The fact that we're able to maintain, not only pivot, so we remained present, but then maintain the quality and accessibility levels. So from the parents' perspective, nothing really changed, apart from the fact that you were no longer face-to-face, -face, but it still felt like the same place. And I think that was incredibly hard for so many businesses to do. The disconnect could so easily happen, right? And we were in a, well, I think everyone was a fiercely competitive space in businesses, in EdTech. Everyone is offering freebies, right? To try and survive, to try and grab hold of parents anywhere. So it was very, very competitive. And the fact that we didn't have to do that really, didn't have to change our model significantly, um, is a testament to the fact that uh, parents felt, I'm safe here, my child's safe here, I know who they are, uh, they can trust them, and they'll look after, they'll look after my baby, and that's, that's, that's really what, you know, what parents wanted. And that, of course, tied in with you know, parents homeschooling more, and now gradually realizing what the education system really is, with all its pros and cons, the fact that we were also, you know, we're in that space of, you know, the messages we were sending them now really resonated. Like, this is why this is important. This is why you must do this. So all of those factors, I think, came in um, and helped kind of maintain that consistency um, for parents. And as Leanne said, um, with the teams as well, they needed to feel they were in a safe place to land as well because, you know, COVID was rampant. As Leanne said, you know, people had to move. One minute you're available, next minute you're shielding. So, you know, you can't leave your house. And the fact that you have a place you can come to work flexibly around your partner or your children is invaluable, particularly in a world where so many people were losing work or at risk. Um, just providing that safety and, and certainty, I think, was really, really invaluable for us. It was a big part of our endurance. And we carried on in a bit. Sorry. We carried on in innovating as well. I mean, we didn't just stop there at moving to online classes. We were doing parties. We were doing escape rooms. We just kept our ear completely close to the ground to our audience. And we developed some partnerships with some companies and corporates um, and understanding that no one could meet up, whether that was for a personal party or a corporate party or team social. So, um, you know, it, when I look back at the things we did, um, you do things quickly but don't scale when you have to, right? And and that was definitely a case in that. But we still get inquiries for those products and they're very easy to, to fulfill. So um, I think it was one of those absolutely exhausting looking back, absolutely exhausting periods of time where the, the ground just kept sh shaking and we thought we'd dealt with it. And we had a, quite a good response to that first part of the pandemic. Then we had a lot of uncertainty about our boots on the ground division you know what about the franchise I mean it's really difficult to demarcate leads and marketing on the internet by territory how do you how do you allow somebody to market themselves and attract only the right clients for that particular postcode that they represent it's really really difficult so um <clears throat> you know it wasn't all plain sailing and, and there was a lot of 
uncertainty about when we could or couldn't open up um, face to face again. The parents were clamoring for it after a you know a long while of only imagine. online. But yeah. you know, was that safe for us to send our team in? There was a huge amount of um, back and forth. And then will the vaccines work? I remember, you know, Rumbi and I had like a plan A, plan B, plan C, down to about F. Yes. What if? What if this what happens? What if schools don't open? What if, what if this happens? What if exactly? And you just had to really forecast for every eventuality, really. Yeah. So we were ready for anything. And I think that's um, that sort of planning and replanning and obsessive planning and really thinking through every possible ramification of impact for us is, is how we manage that time successfully. I, the longer we talk, the more questions I have. We need at least another hour of this. <laughs> but being respectful of your time, uh, what I'm hearing from you is something that I feel like is really relatable, no matter what other entrepreneurs or intrapreneurs who are listening are coming from. Uh, some things to unpack for our listeners to think about is, I love that you just um, called out that you tried some things that you knew wouldn't scale because that was, would give you the ideas and, and something to pivot from. I think not enough entrepreneurs do that where you're willing, I mean, Airbnb is a great example of that. They did so many things in the beginning that did not scale or make sense, but it gave them this dose of inspiration that unlocked you know, their path to innovation within the travel space. You hired the right team, you were passion-driven alignment. I've heard you share best practices of you were willing to take risks before the rest of the world was really stepping into those spaces. And that's allowed you to compete in a, a really interesting way. And I I wonder if if I can only have time for one last question is what words of wisdom would you give to other entrepreneurs who are really committed to their space to what they want to put into the world, but don't really know how to get started. As you uh, early on said, Leanne, you wanted to share with them, you, you wanted to get into the space even though you're not a coder or a professional educator. What about other entrepreneurs who are interested in showing up in the world in a unique way, um, but are maybe allowing some of those things to hold them back? I would say absolutely go for it, but um, set yourself a very some very strict goals, some timelines, allow yourself a certain amount of time you're going to give to this idea and be really lean about it, really think about how to prove the demand for it, test it out. Um, <clears throat> so in the early days of Mama Codes, before we started the company, we had a whole load of parent hacks in our homes where local parents were invited to hook up their iPads to the TV and we could have a chat to them <clears throat> about their views on coding, kids, technology, what were their fears? What was stopping them getting involved in this? And that was really invaluable. And it didn't cost any money at all. It cost me the pack of biscuits and my time. Um, so anything you can do kind of in terms of guerrilla research, really testing out, stand on the corner, stand at the station, chat to people. Where are the people you think are going to use this product or service? Go and talk to them yourself. Um, and this can be a side hustle. It doesn't. You don't have to give up your job to do this. It can be, I, I did my consulting alongside looking into Mamakos for a good nine, nine months. Um, then I would say find a mentor. Talk to somebody you admire in that space. Tell them you admire them. You'd like to have a coffee or, a, or a, a, could, could they do some online mentoring or even just kind of are they open to having some email chat back, feedback on your idea? Because somebody who's been there and goes a bit ahead of you will have, you know, succeeded and failed in a number of ways they can share. And they can be an honest friend to you and, and give you that feedback that will help you save time. And then find your network. Um, you know, entrepreneurship is not an easy road. 
I'm really um, struck more now that I was quite inspired by my parents who were both self-employed and started a number of businesses. Friends of mine who are in corporates or in the civil service often say to me, I could never do what you do. And for me, it's just kind of in my blood. I, I don't see it as a, a crazy thing to do, as a risky thing to do. Things haven't always gone well for, for many people I know in, in business, but that doesn't stop me wanting to give it a go and, and having belief that, that there's no reason that I can't make it work. Um, so having a can-do attitude is quite crucial, but a mentor and a network of others doing the same sort of thing at the same stage as you, a little bit ahead of you and a little bit behind you. Incredible nuggets of wisdom there. Gather the data, do your market research, take your time, invest in it at this stage. Don't be afraid to use it as a side hustle until it's got that traction and transition point and find your network of supporters who have been there and understand what you're going through. I, I'm nodding my head to every single one of those. Uh, that's been key for me as well. Uh, Rumbi, anything you wanted to add to that? Anything that you think? Um, that, that was pretty comprehensive. I, yeah. I can't overstate the, you know, the finding a, a tribe. It's so hard to kiss female founders to do this on your own. Um, and there's no need to nowadays, which is wonderful, as Dan said. There are there are networks, um, and unfortunately, fortunately, you do have to find them. So it is about being um, reaching out, getting out of your head a bit, getting past the ego a bit, just getting out there and having those conversations. And it's okay if you don't know, you know, just to, just to put yourself out there because there are lots of well-intentioned, well-meaning people who absolutely get it who know exactly what it was like, who wanted to help. And one thing I loved, you know, working with, with Leanne, I think I said this, um, when we got together, um, I tended to be in very kind of male-dominated um, environments uh, in my corporate life. And, um, and uh, when I was consulting, it was female founders, but it's still a kind of very male world. But what I love about being in ed tech is there are so many women. And when I... The energy, the way that we work is feels so different. One of the things that struck me was, you know, really collaborative, really helpful. Like, it's okay if you don't know, let's get together. Let's, you know, let's pitch together. Let's tell me your ideas. And, and it's so, so refreshing. So, so refreshing. Um, so, you know, this, I, that's probably the biggest thing is find your tribe to start bouncing your ideas off. Um, and also to give you steer on, you know, the best place to start, like things like addressable market, the kind of nuts and bolts, like it, it was, it was what I want to do. Does it make sense? And I need people to test that off and to feed back to me. And that's important, I think, to start off if you don't have anything but an amazing idea and you want to start. That'll probably be the first thing to do. And I can't believe I missed this one out. Get a co-founder. Yes. Oh the load. Gosh, right? yes. Like absolutely yes. valuable. And the number of times, you know, we've lifted each other up talked since when the other person was floundering or worried or you know it, it's or dealing with long COVID. We've, we've both been dealing with a bit of long covid mm -hmm. since january actually and it's uh, we've both yeah. you know, our whole team's had a huge amount of covid impacts it's really you know impacted on some of the things we've been working on they've just taken longer but we're still getting them done just managing around real world impacts so much wisdom in that getting Having the right co-founder changes everything, and that enables you. I love that you said this, Rumbi, about getting out of your own head. I'm guilty of that. I mean, literally last night, like woke up in that like panic moment at three in the morning about things that aren't finished that I need to be. Um, I could talk to both of you forever and ever. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. If um, if I could ask one lightning round final question, it's my favorite last question. It would be 
what gives each of you hope for the future? What are you excited about in the coming years or maybe in this coming generation? I am excited about how I can see technology in a real sense can be the great leveler. The disparities are so great. COVID made them even greater. But the fact that there's a real opportunity to give everyone, and in our case, every child, a fair shot or the same shot is what really that, that, that gets me up every morning. Yeah, I think it's very similar. I think that um, I've always been hugely excited by technology. It's kind of right from the start of my career. Um, but I feel like everything is coming together that I'm passionate about, not only in kind of my work at Mamako's, but kind of in, in the in the in wider debate and uh, you know, progress towards inclusion and using technology and education to drive that. And I just think we're perfectly placed to be part of that. It's, it's hugely exciting. There are obviously enormous challenges and the pandemic has widened um, the digital divide. But there are so many people working together to overcome that, that I am largely um, optimistic that it will get closed. And it's such a different skill set, a different way of learning in STEM that children, we've seen children on the spectrum, send children absolutely excel, who have been shut out of mainstream learning and that's just one of the ways that we're being inclusive and, and driving access, um, which really, really excites me. I am so inspired by your work. I am so grateful that you're putting this out there. I think it's one of the most important causes that we can have is more diversity and inclusion in technology. Uh, base codes are being written now for artificial intelligence that are going to be really hard to undo. And we need more diversity in every possible definition of the word, word participating in that. So thank you for inspiring and building up this next generation um, who will be a part of building a future that we all will be proud of. And um, thank you for this message and inspiring our listeners. Um, many of them out there have other great ideas of ways that they can be influential in their community and turn their passion projects into the impact that the world really needs right now. So Leanne Katz and Rumbi Bendy, thank you so much for being on the Better Than Yourself podcast today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting us.